Hey friends, welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. My name is Eric Nevins, and I can't wait to share this episode with you today. Uh, Today, our guest, I'll tell you what, if it is summertime and I'm out and about, he's on my radio, and uh, he has an amazing story uh, that I can't wait to share with you. I think you guys will enjoy it. Our guest today is Jerry Schemmel. Jerry, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate it. It is really great to just connect with you and hear a little bit of your story. Um, but it's, it's cool. Uh, you, you're one of the radio announcers for the Colorado Rockies here in town. That's, that seems like a dream yeah. job. <laughs> well, it's, I can't complain too much about it. You know, it's uh you get, you get paid to go to the ballpark and watch baseball and talk <laughs> about it. It's a pretty good gig. No doubt. I'm a huge baseball fan, except don't tell anybody, but I'm kind of a Cardinals guy. So uh, that's okay. That's fine. <laughs> we I'm sh- good with that. We show up at uh, Coors Field every time the the cards are in town, which is once a year. So, all right. Anyway, well, that, well, that's cool. Yeah. It's, so it's kind of fun to just uh, you know chat with you after hearing you on the radio so much. Um, I can't wait to hear your story. Your story is definitely amazing. God's done some amazing things for you. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about um, kind of who you are and, and where God has you now, and then and then we'll go back into your story. Yeah, I uh, grew up in a small town in South Dakota, a uh, small town kid, Madison, South Dakota, is 6,000 people, and I uh, went to school at Washburn University in Kansas, Topeka, Kansas. I played baseball there and I uh, got a broadcast journalism degree. I also got a law degree from uh, Washburn University and practiced law for a while, Eric, in, in Topeka for four or five years and kind of did broadcasting at the same time kind of part-time with each. And then I got a big break in 1991 when I started with the Minnesota Timberwolves. It was their second year and I was uh, doing radio and TV for them for a couple of years. And then another big break came to, to Denver in 1992 to become the radio announcer for the Denver Nuggets. I did that for 18 seasons and then uh, started with the Rockies in 2010. So I'll be, gosh, this spring starting my 10th year with the Rockies. Wow. So uh, kind of a long, long journey, but a fun one and, and uh, a lot of action in those 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. So what's one thing that people don't know about sports from a broadcaster's perspective? That we just don't show up at the ballpark and flip the switch on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, there is a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of prep, but there's a lot of background. There's, there's, there are long days, no complaints again, but long days, long season. But a lot of people think, ah, oh, I just show up, you know, before game time and, and hit the, hit the switch and go on the air. And that's not how it works. Oh, it's, yeah. a, it's a long, it's a, you know, 11, 12 hour day every day for, for baseball. And I think a lot of people don't quite get that. Yeah. I've always wondered about that because, you know, you make it sound easy when you talk about different players and uh, like, you know, where they are on the diamond all the time. And I can barely keep up if I'm, even if I'm at the ballpark, you know, like, oh, I, I had no idea that guy came into right field. So, uh, Yeah, well, <laughs> it, take, it, it takes like anything else. You get better at it with, the more you do it. And you know, hopefully by now I should have figured it out. No doubt. No doubt. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Well, that is an interesting part of your story, but I want to go back. So you mentioned you grew up in South Dakota, small town in South Dakota. Um, what was that like for you? And, you know, we think of the Midwest being sort of good values, um, you know, family, probably some religion. What was that? What was that like for you? It was awesome, to be honest with you. Mm. It, it's something I, I would, uh, I, I, I can never replace. I mean, I, I just put a lot of value on the way we were grow. It was, it was small town, you know, sixties and seventies for me. And um, when people 
hear this, they don't believe it, but we never locked our houses, never locked our cars. Yeah. We kept the keys in the ignition in the car, so we wouldn't we wouldn't lose them. <laughs> you could ride your you could ride your bike anywhere. And in the summertime, we would do that. We we get up and go and, and come back for dinner time. And mom and dad would have no idea where we were all day. We yes. just out doing stuff. And and that really was the way it was. It was a great childhood. It was a, it was a fun place to to grow up. Uh, a little isolated uh, in small town South Dakota, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah. What was the religious climate like for you at home? You know, I grew up in the in the Catholic Church, and not not uh, with a family that that practiced religion a lot. Didn't talk about it much. Just kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, showed up on Sunday mornings for mass, and that, and that was that was really about it. That was the way we were taught: was that as long as you you show up on Sundays, everything's going to be fine. Uh, realized later that 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 wasn't the case. That uh, that was probably a uh, something that that was mistaught and, and probably might be still that way, but uh, that's kind of the way it was. It was not, not a lot of emphasis put on it at all. We just we just go to church when we were told to go. Yeah, that's interesting. There seem to be kind of two stories that I hear from people who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. Either maybe, maybe three, but at least kind of like yours, where it's like this is just a thing we do and it's kind of tacked onto our life, or you know, sort of like this is everything we do and it's just full of guilt and shame. Yeah, not yeah. always. Well, yeah, no, and and I think my story probably, Eric, is a combination of those two. Mm. I, I think it was, you know, that God is God has got a gavel in His hand; He's watching you. You better not mess up because if you do, you're going to be in serious trouble. Yeah, and that affects you, right? It affects how you think yeah. about who He is and sure. His love for you. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And and you know, that's not. I found out later, not accurate. That's not the way that God operates. Yeah, and you found that out you know, kind of in the aftermath of the plane crash that you were in, in South Dakota or in uh, Sioux city. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that, so would you say that that's the moment that you found Christ? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It was, uh, no, I could pinpoint it. It was, uh, it was about a year after the crash, uh, about uh, actually 10 months after the crash and having had a lot of problems like everybody else did that survived the crash with yeah. survivor's guilt and all the stuff that comes along with, with post-trauma stress disorder. And, and uh, I just was in a in a tough place, and and finally decided that that I had nowhere else to turn but to the Lord, and I did that, and and uh, I'd never never opened a Bible, had never read the Bible. I just like I said, showed up on Sunday morning and and went through the process, and I realized that there was a there was a God that I had uh, misjudged that loved me and wanted the best for me and wanted to forgive my sins and wanted me to live with him forever. And, and I finally mm-hmm. figured all that out after the crash and because of the crash, uh, because yeah. of a real, real difficult place that I got in about a year after that. Yeah. Well, I think that's understandable. So dropping a plane crash on our friends listening to us today, that's a, that's a big, uh, that's a, that's a big story. So let's go back yeah. and, and fill in some of those gaps. So you were working with the the CBA and you were trying to hop on a flight uh, headed to Chicago and then on to Ohio. Was it Cleveland, maybe? It was uh, Columbus. Columbus. Yeah. Okay, yeah, on, on Ohio. And then, um, and you were on this plane. And so, just tell us a little bit about that story and kind of what your experience was with it. Yeah, yeah. Flying from Denver to Chicago, going to make a connection to Chicago. Actually, going to the CBA college draft, the, the CBA, the Continental Basketball Association. Back then was the NBA's minor league system. We kind of ran that uh, myself and Jay Ramsdale, who was the commissioner and. We uh, were supposed to fly at seven o'clock in the morning. Our flight got canceled. 
got on a plane finally at, I think, about 2.30 in the afternoon or uh, or close to that uh, mountain time. And, you know, we took off for Chicago under perfect conditions, Eric. It was 83 degrees when we left. It was There was no expected turbulence. We were in a DC-10, which is a jumbo jet, big plane, 296 people aboard, completely full. And uh, we got about halfway to Chicago. It's about a two-hour flight from Denver to Chicago. Got about a halfway there, 59 minutes in the flight. When when this explosion happened, and to give you maybe an idea, listeners, an idea of what what I say when I say explosion, the first thing that I thought when I heard it, and then I felt it a couple seconds after that, kind of moved to the cabin, was that a bomb has gone off. Wow. I thought a, a terrorist had planted a bomb; it had been detonated, uh, and we started to drop. and And I thought this is it for everybody: a terrorist has planted bombs, been detonated, and we're going down. Uh, and we did for about uh, about 30 or 40 seconds, and then the plane eventually kind of eased back up, came out of that drop, and after a couple of minutes, we, we leveled off again. We were in serious trouble, but we actually leveled off again to, and, and took some of the panic out of the cabin. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So this is everybody's worst nightmare, right? Like, yeah. Oh yeah. man. How, what was your first thought? So you thought that, okay, we've been bombed, but like, what are you thinking about in those moments? You know, I'm thinking <laughs> strange things enter your head in those situations. Yeah. I was, as we were going down, dropping, I was trying to calculate how many people were on the plane. I mean, I don't know why. I think it was because, all right, we're going to we're gonna hit the ground. We're all going to die. I wonder how many people this is. This tragedy is going to, how many lives are going to take. So I started to calculate, and I, 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 I came up with 200 in a matter of seconds. I was way off. There was almost 300, but that was what I was thinking initially. And then I was thinking, all right, well, this is it. I mean, we're, we're all going to hit the ground sometime soon here. And, um, that's it. My, and, you know, I, I think I've lived a pretty good life. Then the next thought, third thought was, this is all in a matter of seconds, obviously yeah. was, I am so glad. I am so thankful. My, my wife is not with me on this flight. As I always travel and thought, oh, it'd be great to have Diane with me and I miss her. And I wish she was here. This is the one time where I was so thankful she wasn't with me and didn't have to go through this. Yeah, that's so interesting that one of your first thoughts is gratitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was for me. I mean, it was. Uh, it, it was. Uh, yeah, uh, this is a terrible thing, and it's going to be a terrible tragedy. And two hundred people. I didn't know it was going to be three hundred, or could have been three hundred. But uh, yeah, I was thinking. Uh, I'm just. I'm thankful for one thing, and that's that the there's one fewer person on the plane. That's my wife. Wow. Yeah. And she ends up being instrumental in, in your kind of finding Christ afterwards, which is Yeah, awesome. she, she sure was. Yep. Yep. She was a Christian woman from the day I met her. Oh, that's great. Okay. So you're, you were on the plane for like 45 minutes before it actually landed in uh, Sioux City. And um, you were, you, you did some interesting things. Like you were trying to comfort other people. Like what was your kind of thought process through that? Yeah, it was. We had so much time because number one, they had, they had trouble getting uh, control of the plane. That took a while, and then uh, once they got a heading for Sioux City, which is where we we're directed to make this emergency landing, the plane kept veering off to the right on its own. They couldn't com- control the direction of the plane, so we had to come back and line up. I think we did that three or four different times, which is why it took us so long. But it was, I think, initially it was. I think you know we're all going to die, and then we came out of that drop and leveled off, and we were told what had happened. Um, I still was convinced that I wasn't going to make it, and I just thought, all right, we'll do whatever you can to try to help other people. If we hit the ground and you're dead or hurt seriously, you can't do that. But don't panic, don't flee the plane, just in case you are alive. 
And so that was my thought was to try to comfort a few people before we hit the ground. And if I happen to be alive and not hurt seriously after we came to a stop, then I, I told myself I was not going to panic. Don't don't panic. Don't mm-hmm. flee the plane. Just stay in and help and stay in as long as you can and do what you can. Yeah. yeah which is, I think, actually a really fascinating perspective of trying to help other people. That says a lot about you. Well, I, you know, I, I think because my wife wasn't with me, Eric, it really it made a difference. Oh, that's By myself, my travel companion was sitting seven rows back. We couldn't get out of our seats to to go talk to anybody. So I just kind of talked to people around me, and uh, there was not much else I could <laughs> do. To be honest with you, we couldn't. Uh, we were we were strapped in, and and because it was such a dangerous situation. So, uh, it, you know, I, I'd like to say that it was sure. my character that I would help other people, but I think in that situation. Everybody was doing the same thing. Yeah, and and what else can you do? You're not you're yeah. not in control. So for our friends who haven't he- either heard your story or read the book, um, you know the you didn't know this at the time, but the plane was the hydraulics were crippled in the back, right, because of the explosion mm-hmm. on the tail of the DC-10, and so that uh, they couldn't steer the plane, they couldn't you know do any kind of the normal stuff that they would do to to direct the plane or slow it down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And when hydraulics are taken out, you eliminate basically all your controls. And, and the other thing they realized they couldn't do was slow the plane down. It was a three-engine aircraft, and they lost the number two engine. It exploded. But they had the one and the three, the wing engines left. But they realized if they slowed both of those engines down, they're going to lose control of the plane. They tried to slow the airspeed down, mm-hmm. couldn't do it. So biggest factor was our speed when we hit the ground. We A normal DC-10 landing is about 125 miles an hour when you touch down, and we actually hit at 255 wow. because they couldn't slow the plane down. And like you said, no steering, very little control of anything, but that airspeed was the, was really the biggest factor. Yeah. So I was totally mesmerized. And I get, man, I'm, this is probably not an unusual reaction to, to your story, but as I was reading that moment for you when the plane hit the ground, just how you know, just how scary that must have been and what some of what your experience was like there. Do you, do you find, you know, it sounds like you're, you're okay talking about it now, but what, what is that like now to talk about that? You know, I think it's, it, I, I've never had a problem talking about it. Yeah. Obviously, if you write a book, you, you probably are obligated <laughs> to talk about it. Right. But, uh, um, and I always thought it's good therapy. I, I think what, mm. what I've found, Eric, is over the years, I've found really two general groups of people that, that survived our crash. Group one is the one of ones who have talked about it, and they're the ones who are doing pretty good. They've been able to move on and and still achieve dreams and and do cool things. And then there's the other group that from day one refused to talk about it, refused to acknowledge it, even held it all in. And those are the people that are struggling uh, still today, almost 30 years later, because of the crash. So I thought it was important to. It's never going to go away. It's not. Yeah. Gonna, it's going to be part of my life forever. It's not going to. Nothing's going to change be, because I do or don't talk about it. So let me just face it head on and talk about it. And maybe in the process of talking about it, doing like you and I are doing today, have a positive influence on somebody Mm -hmm. in in some small way. I think that's one of the reasons I survived in my mind anyway, I survived the crash. Yeah, that's interesting. There's, there's a way that God often will use things like this. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll bring some good out of it if he, you know, I'm sure he can. Um, Absolutely. So that's some, that's part of the power of the gospel of what he does. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So can you just, for our friends who haven't had a chance to hear this story, like describe those last few, few moments or describe what the crash was like from your perspective. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had actually, because we had so much time, practice the, the uh, landing position, practice the emergency landing brace position. So 
we flight attendants took us through it. We practiced it not once but twice. So we knew once we came in the final approach what to do, and that was when we got the word to um, to brace. We we did that. We you stick your your tuck your forehead in the seat in front of you and cross your arms, hold the top of the seat back. And we we knew what we were doing. We had done the drill already. But I think Eric, um, I. You know, I thought about the, the touchdown and the crash and all that. I don't think anybody was ready for how hard we hit. Oh yeah, it was just it was just a, such a jolt. It was like we dropped out of the sky and hit the ground, which is pretty much what we did because we hit it 255 miles an hour. But I I, I just uh, I never envisioned that we would hit down that hard. And immediately inside the plane, I mean, immediately first couple seconds, bodies are being thrown around. Some still strapped in their chairs. Their, their chairs had given bodies thrown from their chairs and smoke and fire and debris all in the first couple of seconds after we hit down. Um, and and it, I guess you you should anticipate that because we were told it was going to be a crash landing, but I don't know if anybody was ready for how hard we hit. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things that I, that really struck me is that the people flying around and the, you know, still attached to their seats, you described it. And I was, wow. Yeah. That's uh, you didn't, you wouldn't expect that, but yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, and, and and then uh, you know after a few seconds saw all this happening, and then it felt like it felt like the plane had hit down, and I and I knew in the first couple of seconds, I started thinking to myself, all right, there's people dead, there's people, a lot of people hurt, but maybe we kind of coast to a stop now because it felt like we we hit and then we bounced a couple of times, then we started sliding forward, and I thought, all right, we'll just we'll just we'll coast to a stop and I'll assess things then. But then at that thought, probably 10 or 15 seconds after the, the initial impact, the plane flips over. It, it goes upside down. It kind of cartwheels end to end. And, and after that, we slid another, I think it was at the 13 or 1400 feet wow. after we hit the ground that the plane flipped over frontwards. And then we slid upside down and backwards for another 4,000 feet. So it was, oh, wow. uh, it was, you know, it was almost, it was well over a mile from start to finish, at least the piece of plane that I was in. Wow. Yeah, that's a long, that seems like a long time and a long ways to go. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so it finally stops and you're looking around and realize you're, you've survived. What was, what was, what went through, what went through your head first? Yeah. You know, you know, we came to stop and I was hanging upside down, uh, still stacked in my chair. One of the very few people in that position, unbuckle my seatbelt and, and just kind of drop down to the ceiling now because we're upside down. And I didn't see any way to get out at that point. The, the emergency exit was near me. It was gone. It was it was a wall of burning scrap. So I couldn't. I, my plan was to open that, and it was it was gone. So uh, plan B was just to kind of react to what the circumstances were. And and smoke was coming from the front of this whole section I was in. I had no idea we'd break it broken off in the rest of the plane. So I'm in a section that's rows. There are 37 rows in the DC-10. I'm in row 23. And I end up in a section that's rows about 20 through about 28 or 29, pretty small section compared to some of the other ones. And I made my way away from the smoke that was coming from the front to the back and eventually found an opening at the back of the plane. And there were a couple other guys that were, weren't hurt seriously like me that just kind of, we kind of huddled up real quick. And, and one of them said to the other two of us, he said, let's just start helping some people and maybe we can find a way out in the process. And so we started doing that. We realized right away that a lot of people were not alive, but the ones that we were, that were, we, we tried to try to help, tried to, to get them their feet and get them toward the back of the plane away from the smoke. And eventually we found that way out where the back of the plane had broken off mm -hmm. from the, from where we were. Yeah. You're, you're helping people get out. And 
um, you eventually, I, this was kind of a famous moment. You ran back in and helped, uh, help survive, help, a or found a little girl in the, within the wreckage. Yeah. Yeah. That, that just sort of, that just sort of happened to be yeah. very honest with you. And, you know, I got this hero tag and, and I'll be honest, it never felt right. It always felt artificial because I just reacted like sure. anybody else, like you would have anybody else would have. I got outside the plane and I heard a baby crying. And the next thing I know, I'm back inside the wreckage. We're completely full of smoke now. I can't see anything. But I just went back in, followed the cries, and uh, found a baby buried in an overhead bin and just picked her up. She was, I think, 11 months old and picked her up and and shot out the plane the second time. But I didn't think it through. I didn't weigh any risks. I I didn't think about becoming yeah. a hero. It just happened. In a, you're in a in a crazy plane crash. You're a baby crying. You're going to respond to that. Yeah, which I think is... It's kind of fascinating. I think that says a lot about human character, right? Like there, there's yeah. times in, in tragedy, you know, one of the things people say is look, look for the heroes, but look for the, look for the, I would say the image of God in people, right? Look for the mm-hmm. ways that he runs in sure. to rescue us, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. It's a, that's a great metaphor. It really is. And, and people tell me, have told me over the years, I don't know if I would have done that. Of course you would have. You're, yeah. you're 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 exiting a burning plane. You hear a baby crying. What do you do? Run away? Run away from a baby crying? No, you're going to go back and, and see what you can do. And 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 I think I think anybody would because that's a natural, godly reaction to that circumstance, in my opinion. Yeah, certainly. Were you praying during this time at all, or were you just kind of like not? You know, that I, wasn't there. I, I was. Uh, not really. Um, I, mm. I, again, I was praying, just thank God that my wife wasn't there and didn't have to go through this whole this whole thing. But um, you know, it was it was more a feeling of, of peace. I mean, I thought I was going to uh, die in the crash. I was completely convinced I was. I just bought a new life insurance policy, <laughs> so the practical side of things kind of kicked in. I thought, well, my wife will be taken care of financially. That's good, and so I, I'm pretty much at peace. But no, there really, there really wasn't much of that. And, and again, I wasn't a spiritual person at all. I had no, yeah. no spiritual foundation back then at all. But you know, I, I prayed to a higher being. I didn't really know who God was then, but uh, I, I just prayed that you know that we get out of this somehow. And thank you that my wife isn't here. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I'm a little curious about. I wonder if that peace, you know, was perhaps the presence of God anyway, even though you didn't know Him yet. Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair. I think mm. that's that's accurate. Absolutely. You know, I, I I I knew there was a God. I just didn't know who He was at that point, but yeah. I obviously knew who I was. Well, obviously, something like this just completely changes your life. Your friend you mentioned, Jay, died in the in the crash, and uh, along with it was 112 people total. Right, um, 112. And you know, I think somewhat miraculously, there were almost 200 who survived. Right. right? 184. Yeah. Yeah. When you see the video, like like I have hundreds of times, you wonder how everybody could have survived it. Yeah. Friends, it's worth just going out to YouTube and uh, and looking up uh, United Flight 232 and just looking at it to get a sense of, you know, from the outside, what what this must have been like. And and then just praise God for the fact that anybody survived because it looks looks pretty harrowing. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Miraculous in my mind. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which is, which is interesting. I've actually, um, I've heard stories from other people who've shared their story with me about, um, God sending angels to, you know, which, you know, not necessarily part of, part of your story, but, um, to, to kind of shepherd, uh, 
airplanes, if you will. And I, I'm sure that, that there was some of that, if we want to be spiritual about it, the Lord was, was there even though in the midst of the carnage. Yeah, absolutely. And other survivors have said that same thing. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, so you survive, you get out. I'm sure that that was traumatic. You talked a little bit about your um, kind of res- response to that, the survivor's guilt, depression, um, and that kind of led you into a dark place, but it was a place you had to go in order to find the Lord. So tell us about that period afterwards. Yeah. You know, I was, I was warned by a trauma counselor that, that the, this post-trauma stress disorder would hit me. The effects of it would hit me. And I had never heard that term. I'd know, uh, and I didn't believe him. I just thought, you know, I'll just brush it off. It's a tragedy, but I'll move on in my life. And, and I couldn't do that. And all the, all the uh, effects of post-trauma stress hit me, uh, the survivor's guilt, like you said, the anger, the listlessness, the depression, all that stuff that yeah. I was warned about what happened to me did happen just like the counselor said it would. And, and I quit my job. Uh, my marriage is falling apart. I got six brothers and sisters and my parents were alive at that point. Um, I wouldn't even talk to them. I wouldn't even return their phone there. I wouldn't even answer the phone, talk to them at all. And, just, just really wrapped up in in that crash and the, and the effects of it, and couldn't sleep and had nightmares about it. There was a little boy that was sitting in a seat in front of me who died in the crash, and you know, this guilt about he dying and I surviving were you know two and a half feet apart. He got a whole his whole life in front of him. Just struggled with all that stuff, and yeah. and uh, there, there came to a point like I mentioned earlier, ten month anniversary of the crash. It was actually ten months to the day after the crash, right? sat down in a chair. My wife was working. Thank God we had some kind of income, but uh, I just realized that for the first time in my life and first time in 30 years, I was 29 at the time of the crash, now 30, uh, that I had been knocked down, Eric, and I could not mm. pick myself back up. I, I couldn't do it on my own anymore. I had always done things on my own. I worked my way through college and law school when I was an athlete and you know, and all this stuff that you know, I thought I was tough enough to get through anything, and I, and I couldn't do this. And So I just asked God to come into my life. And it wasn't a specific prayer to get a new job or come out of depression or save my marriage. It was just, God, give me, please, some kind of relief from this crash because I can't do this by myself anymore. And when I said that, I know some people listening to this will, will think it's it's corny and it really didn't happen this way. I swear to you, it did. When I said that, something came over me. It mm-hmm. wasn't an audible voice. It wasn't a physical thing, but it was this overwhelming feeling of contentment and peace that told me in that moment that because of what I had just done, and more importantly, the ally I just invited in my life, that eventually, not not that moment the next day, but eventually, I was going to win every single battle mm-hmm. because I had the right ally fighting that battle with me. It was just this overwhelming sense of peace that just came through me in that moment. And, and that was the beginning for me. That was the beginning of the story, not the end of it. Um, a couple of weeks, well, I, let me backtrack. I told my wife about it and uh, what had happened, and she recommended I start reading the Bible, and I started doing that. And then I realized after a short time reading the Bible that if I wanted to be like my wife or to be like you and some friends I had in that my sins were forgiven and my spot in heaven secured, I had one more really big decision to make. And that was to accept Christ as my Savior. And I did that, I think, a couple of weeks, probably about two and a half weeks after that. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that sort of surrender moment where you felt the, the presence of God led you to give Him your entire life. Yeah, eventually. exactly right. Wow. Yes, sir. Oh, I love that. I'm really curious yeah. about, you know, you, so you give your life to Christ. I'm sure that it still took you some time to work through everything that 
you know, that happened. You talk a little bit about connecting with the pilot. Um, is it Al Haynes? Yeah, Al Haynes. Yeah, Al Haynes, yeah. Um, and how that was helpful. But um, like, how else did God really help you through that? Yeah, I, I, I think it was this. I think it was God telling me in the early stages after that crash that, you know what, this this crash is never going to go away, Jerry. It's, it's going to be a part of your life. Mm. But I'm going to use that experience for my glory. And, and I got, I get a very clear picture of that. And, and after I got that message from God, it was, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about it in churches. I'm going to talk about it in motivational talks. I'm going to, I'm going to write a book about it. Um, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to face this thing head on and use the experience for God's glory. And I think going, going back, looking back on it now, and I haven't done this ever since that moment, but I've, I've thought about this the last couple of years. I think when I look back at that whole experience, and especially the time afterward when I finally surrendered to God, it was this. It was God telling me this. It was, Jerry, I finally got your attention. Yeah. <laughs> it took 30 years in a plane crash, but I finally got your attention. And now that I do, I want to tell you about my son. And more importantly, I want you to spend the rest of your life telling other people about my son through this plane crash. I think that's what it was. I think that's why I survived that crash. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So tell us about some of the fruit of that. So if God has has given you this message, when you share it with people, how do people respond and how does, how's God using it? Um, You know, I I think in a, in a secular setting, it is, um, it is this, a, a secular message that I try to give to people is, you know, life is so short. It's so precious. Let's take advantage of it. If there, if you've got a bucket list, you better go out and start checking it off. Or if yeah. you've got something you've always wanted to do, and do it with all, all with it with integrity. But you know, life is really short. Uh, in one moment, that little boy in front of me is happy and healthy and playing peekaboo with the seat with me. Next moment, he's dead. Yeah. I, I know how fast it can change. It, it's not going to be that way for everybody. We're probably going to get half tomorrow. Very good chance we'll wake up. We'll be alive tomorrow. But there's a chance we might not, or get a diagnosis or something. So let's let's really take advantage of the opportunity we have in, in life. That's the secular message in churches and Christian groups. It is this: um, I, I got I got stuck in a trap for for thirty years with me uh, telling with people telling me and me believing that if you scratch God's back, he'll scratch yours. If you do something for him, he'll do something for you. If you don't mess up very often. And, and, and God says, all right, you haven't, you haven't messed up that much. I'm going to let you live with me someday. I'll let you in. And and I fell in that trap for 30 years, that trap of works. And I was an athlete and, mm. and it, that contributed to it. You know, the, the harder you work, the, the better you are and no pain, no gain, all that. I thought that was God. And I tell people, I fell in that trap of works for 30 years and that trap of works is a lie. It's a lie. And so they tell people, and I think a lot of people can appreciate that. And, and you know, uh, your spot in heaven, salvation is not based on works. It's not what you do for God. It's based on faith in his son. There's nothing you have to do. You don't yeah. have to perform. You just have to believe and you have everlasting life. And I think people can relate. I think especially guys can, because we fall in that trap of, of works. And we think we got to, we got to work our way through it and earn it. And then we're there. Yeah, it's not the truth. Well, it's it's such a stark contrast to kind of the life that we generally live, right? Where we have, um, you know, we have we have our career, we have like you were talking about sports or even relationships, right? You know, I can be successful if I do all the right things, 
right? That mm-hmm. can that can be kind of the the mindset, and you know, the gospel really is antithetical to that. It's like, no, that's not right. it's not true. Or you know, you can't do all the right things for God. You have to simply trust Him and follow Him. That's that's the yeah. key. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think that's uh, that's where a lot of people get in that trap, like I was in. I mean, I can I can appreciate where people are. I wasn't uh, I wasn't a Christian until I was thirty years old. I, you know, I, I didn't do it at Bible school when I was seven or anything like that. Uh, I lived life and experienced this tragedy, and then became a Christian. And I think people can can appreciate that 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 uh, this lie that that I was always believing is is gone now. And and hopefully people can understand that and appreciate it and do the same thing I did. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm curious. So that's a huge story. Obviously, that that's that's really the big peace in the moment that where you come to come to Christ. Um, so thank you for sharing that with us. I'm yeah, really absolutely. curious beyond that. So how have you, what have you learned about yourself kind of in these moments and, and what, what do you feel like God is, um, you know, developing beyond all that deep for you? Yeah, that's a, you know, you know what, uh, what, what I look back on now and, and see with God is that um, he wants me to, to use my life, my platform, my broadcasting, this plane crash, the book, anything I have to serve him, to, to, to give him glory and point people toward his son. I mean, that, that really is what I wake up in the morning and is my, my goal. That that's, that's my number one priority in my life is to, to do those two things, give God glory and point people toward his son. So everything I do, every encounter I have, every interview I do, every Every person listening on the radio that, that I have this platform with the Rockies with, mm-hmm. um, hopefully, is affected in some way. Some, some a little bit, some more than others, depending on the setting. So that that's really where I look at it. That's where how I see my life being played out. It is, you know, you can enjoy life, Jerry. There's nothing wrong with with enjoying life and and having nice things and a great family and. I love to cycle and all that kind of stuff. Nothing wrong with that, but you, I want you to use it all for my glory. And so that's what I, that's what I pray every day is that I will do that, that I will, I will use my experience that I've had in my life and the experience I'll have each day to serve him. Oh yeah. I'm curious. Do you pray for your audience on the radio when you, when you go? Um, I, I, I do. I, I not necessarily on the radio, but sure. I do want to, want to go speak to places, maybe motivational talks and, and churches and that sort of thing. Um, I do. I, I pray that God will put the right people there. Mm. Um, when I'm broadcasting a Rockies game, I'm thinking more about how to um, describe the four, six, three double play rather than <laughs> rather sure. than what my audience might be composed of. That makes sense. That's awesome. I think that's just really, really fascinating. How God not only you know got got your attention, but um, really changed your perspective from one of trying to to live up to something to you know trying to share Christ with everybody that you meet. Yeah. Yeah, it's and my priorities since that time have completely changed and like I said Jesus is my first my first priority and used to be before the crash my career. That was everything and I loved my wife but she was not a not a priority and my career was and I was going to be you know next to Al Michaels or Bob Costas or somebody and be rich and famous and on TV and and all that has completely changed. I mean, my career is important, but it certainly isn't a priority anymore. Yeah, not not the same, not the same level. Nope. Uh, okay, so I'm curious about this question. One of the questions I like to ask people is about their relationship with God since they came to Christ. And um, so I'm curious what, like, if you've ever had a moment 
since then, when God felt far away or if you felt like he was, he was not there and kind of what that experience was like? Yeah, I, th- I think we all have those. Mm. I-, I think no matter who you are, what level, what your experience has been, you have those moments. Uh, for me, it was, um, it, it was career, you know, I, I, there was a couple of jobs that I really wanted that I didn't get. Mm. And, and, and I prayed about thought, Oh God, if you just put me in here, just think of this platform I'd have if I did this or, and, and for me, it was like national jobs. It was yeah. network level tough stuff that I applied for and never got. And I thought, well, I, you know, it, I, I could be even more exposed with my story about the plane crash. And I could tell more people at Jesus if, if I had this and I didn't get the job. And I was like, well, God, are you listening? Are you there? Yeah. Um, that, that, that really is it. Uh, for me, it, it's those moments where I really thought that I, I could be used more by God. And he's saying, no, I, I don't want you there. I want you here. So those are times when I doubted, but at the end of the day, it's always the same. It's God, I'm going to trust you. I uh, I wouldn't have written the script this way, but I don't write perfect scripts. So you just keep on writing them for me. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, it's interesting how that brings you back to trust, right? So yeah, um, I find that that's really part of the of the um, experience. And I think you know, if we're honest about those kind of times when we do have the the questions for God, and we think, well, this would work perfect, right, Lord? This would be great. And he doesn't kind of deliver on that. Um, right. We have it questions, not not really his character, although it feels that way sometimes. It really questions our commitment to him yeah. and our surrender yeah. to him. Yeah, exactly right. And I think when you have those thoughts about you know God, why didn't you come through in this situation? Why didn't I, why didn't this happen? Um, you doubt yourself. I, I think you're exactly right, Eric. You, you think, all right, am I really committed? Because if I am, I'll trust whatever happens. And I can tell you this, the, the longer I've lived, and I've, I just turned 59, the more I find myself trusting God and the, the mm. less upset I get when things don't go the way I think they should be. Yeah. And I get to that point where, all right, God, I, I hear you, I trust you, and I'm just going to go with you. Um, I, I get to that point a lot quicker than I used to, yeah. I think that, and which I think is healthy. Are there any like recent examples that you would want to share about some way that you've you've found yourself trusting God that you thought, Oh, maybe I wouldn't have done that a few years ago. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of examples there. I, I think, um, uh, one for me is I, I thought I had a great shot at this job about six months ago when I was doing the end, doing back in the NBA on a national level and being with the broadcasters and, uh, and I didn't get that job. And it turns out that, uh, it, the radio station I work at in Denver, KOA, is allowing me to start a new program that I've always wanted to do. It's a starting program called Amazing Americans on KOA. It's a weekly oh, one cool. hour interview where I just interview incredible, inspiring, motivating people, uh, like, like the cancer survivor who, who just climbed on Everest. I mean, people like that. I always want to do that show and never had the opportunity. Well, I got said no to this national job at the same time this program at KOA opens up and I'm doing it now starting in January. So, um, I, I, that's, that's a one example where I thought, boy, yeah. that door is closed, but then wait, this door opened over here, which is really a blessing. Yeah, no, that's a great example. I love that. And I'll be listening for that. That'll be good. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's exactly how God works sometimes. And so just having the wherewithal to say, okay, I'm going to trust that and let's see what else happens. Yeah. Um, is a good thing. Wow. Yeah. How has your opinion or how's your, the way you relate with other people changed and kind of your, your goal for your, your own spirituality? 
Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, when I first became a Christian, you know, shortly after the plane crash, I think I was a little, I, I was a, a little nervous about letting other people know what my spiritual conviction is, that I had become a Christian and a follower of Jesus, and that was the first priority in my life. But it, it, to me anymore, uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, I, if I make somebody uncomfortable, then, you know, that, that God needs to work on them. I can't do anything about that. So I think I'm more mm-hmm. bold. I'm bolder these days, Eric, and, and sharing the faith and putting on Facebook and Twitter and social media that I'm a Christian and a, number one, a Jesus follower, where, you know, 10 years ago, I was like, geez, I put that on there or not? That might, you know, mm-hmm. that might dissuade some people or they might not think the right way of me if I did that anymore. I don't care. I just do it and, and, and let God take care of the consequences. Yeah, that's an interesting conundrum when you have, uh, you know, a much larger platform, right? Like, how do I speak about Christ mm-hmm. in this and be, you know, be really faithful to the message and the calling, but also, you know, sometimes it, you, you'll hear people put put the gospel like out there in a way that's not interesting or not, you know, it just turns people off. Yeah. Um, so you kind of have and to I, deal with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think there's, there's smart ways to do it. Mm-hmm. I happen to think that uh, going down downtown Denver on 16th street mall and start yelling about Jesus <laughs> does no good. I think right. it's counterproductive. I, I really do. I think it turns people off. But if I'm in a setting where I can tell people by my experience and how my life completely changed and my uh, and my eternal life is complete, then I'm going to do that. And if I'm going to put on on my Facebook page that I'm a follower of Christ, number one, I'm going to do that and 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 really trust God with how people react mm-hmm. to that. So um, there, you, you can be bold, but you have to at the same time be smart about it. You, you don't want to put it in people's face because that's, like I said, I think counterproductive. Yeah, and there's a time for everybody, right? So there's a right. there's a moment, yeah. and it's really embracing what mm-hmm. God's doing in that person's life. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, like those more intimate moments that you talk about, you know, when you're sitting with somebody, might be more appropriate. Yeah, and I think in my business too, Eric, it's uh, you know encounter a lot of people, especially during the baseball season. You're in the public eye and all that. Just the way you conduct yourself and the way you live your life, uh, I, I think is as much about. Uh, telling people about Jesus is doing it verbally. Um, you know, I always tell people, and I think about this a lot myself, if you can't tell people who Jesus is, show them, yeah. show people who he is by, by living a, a Christ-like life. Yeah. Do I do it all the time? No, I don't. I mess up a lot, but I, I try, and I, and I, and I ch- try to keep getting better at it every day. Yeah. Amen. I love that. If you can't tell people who Jesus is, show them. Friends, that is a yeah. challenge right there. I love that. Yeah. Um, that definitely, and I, I can imagine in the sports world, I don't know, you'll have to tell me, but that it's, uh, it's, I know there are a lot of believers, but it can be an interesting environment with a lot of egos and a lot of people who, Mm -hmm. you know, have kind of a lot invested in themselves, which is fine. Um, but, uh, that can bleed over. And so I I imagine being a Christ-like presence stands out. Yeah, I think it does in, in this business a little bit. This, you know, sports is all about entertainment and money and exposure and you know power and all that kind of stuff. And and so it, it's a tough environment at times to be able to preach Jesus. And and so sometimes you just have to keep your mouth shut and do the right thing rather than than maybe say the right thing. Oh yeah, be Jesus. You don't always have to preach it. Be him. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. I love that. All right. Wow. Well, Jerry, I really appreciate you sharing your story um, just a little bit. Friends, you can um, get, 
I would recommend wholeheartedly Jerry's book, Chosen to Live, which he describes in a lot more detail than we went here about the plane crash and his um, experience with uh, converting or just giving his life to Christ. And uh, there's links in the in the show notes at halfwaytherepodcast.com, so you'll find that there as well. Jerry, anything you want to leave us with? I think there's two groups of people. Let me say it that way, Eric. Two groups of people in the world. Group one is the one that's had a tragedy happen to them, and group two is the one that will. Mm-hmm. Tragedy's going to hit. Some some kind of craziness is going to hit your life. And I just hope that if you're listening, you'll be better equipped than I was to handle that when that tragedy comes. Um, like my wife says all the time, everybody has their own plane crash. If they haven't had it yet, it's coming. And I just hope that people be better equipped to to, uh, to handle that tragedy. And the best way to be equipped by that is to know God and to know His Son. It gets a lot easier when that happens. Yeah. Amen, friends. Uh, if you don't know Jesus, give your life to Him now or ask a friend or shoot me an email. I'd be happy to correspond with you as well, which there's a contact link at halfwaytherepodcast.com. So, Jerry, thanks so much for sharing your story again. I appreciate it. It's great to connect with you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Eric.